Hey guys, this is the Solid Soul Podcast. I'm Donovan. I'm Trevor. And I'm Drew. Alright, first, we're going to do shout-outs to anyone who gives us a review on iTunes. So the first one this week is Pam Beasley, 2455. Thank you very much, Pam, even though that is a character from The Office. So whatever your real name is, we appreciate you. Uh, we'd like you all to check out the site. It's at thesolidsoul.com. We'll have reviews going out daily and content pretty much constantly. So check us out. We got another podcast, big fella. Alright, so first I think we're going to go into talking about a recent release, which is Paul Simon's Stranger to Stranger, which came out on midnight on June 3rd. Does anyone have anything particular they would like to start it off with? I mean, for starters, I feel like there's a pretty solid chance you guys missed it. Um, dropped midnight three days ago, June 3rd. Um, came out of nowhere, honestly, for a 74-year-old dude who has been making music for a real long time, so quite a surprise to a lot of us, honestly. I mean, it, it truly is astounding. Paul Simon is 74 years old, and I think, including his work with Simon and Garfunkel, I think this is probably his third best album ever. It's wow. astonishing. Astonishing. Graceland is better, and Bookends is better. And I think it's about tied with Sounds of Silence. Yeah, it's just not common for someone's voice to just sustain this long over time. I mean, he sounds great consistently on the album. He also sounds kind of like Lou Reed. He, just, he sounds a lot like Lou Reed. <laughs> Particularly on a song like uh, Wristband, it seems like he's even emulating him. I mean, the ad-libs that he does throughout the album and stuff like that really just kind of mirror the kind of things that Lou Reed would like to do. My biggest takeaway from the album more than anything is that he's actually a guy I'd like to have a conversation with more than anybody else that's released music this year. This is one of the most conversational albums I've heard in a really, really long time, and that plays into its strengths a lot. Really, really fun stuff, really good time. I think Start a, to finish. I, I think a conversation with Kanye might still be more fun. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that you know the lyricism on the album is excellent. It's, it's not as if that's unusual for Paul Simon, considering that he's just one of the best lyricists, period, that I can think of. I mean... Compare, for example, I mean, look at look at America from Bookends. That is lyrically one of the most finely crafted songs I can think of. Just in terms of phrasing, Paul Simon is is exceptionally good at making his lyrics not only follow cleverly but play off the previous lyrics in a in a very light and playful way. When you look at like the Werewolf. The Werewolf does that just to a T. Love that song. Is that is that your guys' favorite song on the album so far? It might that's, be mine. That's my favorite. Probably. I gotta give it some more lessons before I come to a verdict on a lot of the stuff on the album, but that is definitely up there. I also really, really like Cool Papa Bell. Um, there's something pretty beautiful about a 74-year-old cursing and then bursting into an entire verse about why cursing is sort of okay. So. Well, and all of the... The way that he structures conversation makes it absurdly listenable. Oh, that absolutely. Between that and his voice, that is a really easy album to listen to. So if you haven't giving it a listen. It's less than 40 minutes and it's a really good time, so I would strongly suggest going back to it. It flows a lot better than it ought to, just considering the his vocabulary in the album. It just flows. That's part of what I was talking about with the phrasing. And that's also true with the, the conversational tone of the piece as a whole. It just flows very well. And Not, 
a delightful 38 minutes, so check it out. True. Not to not to belabor the point on the werewolf, but who was it that was comparing it to About to Die? So yeah, that's part of the year in review article that should be out by the time this podcast comes out. Um, what I think is really interesting about it is um, they really do use the device really similarly. The dirty projectors on About to Die um, basically talk about a variety of monsters throughout the song <laughs> that all symbolize just death and existential problems and he does it a little more concisely just with the werewolf is coming but i mean they're two really great songs i mean about to die is one of my favorite songs pretty pretty comfortably it's it's well up there um but the werewolf definitely meets that metaphor on a similar level in a way that i really enjoy but i gotta stop you guys not a disclaimer there for our listeners if you're going into this album expecting it to sound like the dirty projectors don't it is radically different, though honestly lyrically pretty similar, lyrically pretty playful, um, and does a really good job in terms of painting some vivid pictures, but don't expect five backup vocalists. It's, it's difficult for me to overstate that it's an excellent album, but even more than that, it's just a very fun album to listen to. It really is. Well, he, Paul Simon's just a really funny guy. And he, uh, he tackles all of that. Yeah, he actually tackles real issues while doing that. I mean, from the werewolf to all, really all the way through to the end he's consistently talking about economic social issues in a way that's just really easy for people to understand remarkable social commentary start to finish it's it's not it's not graceland in that respect but it's also not to me miles below graceland graceland's also certainly a more important album but as far as just the the commentary on issues surrounding him i think that it's it's not that far below it i really do well, in a year where there's been a lot of run-up to a lot of albums and just a lot of discussion before albums come out, it was really refreshing to run into this album right as it was coming out, to listen to it, to have a completely clean slate to understand it uh, with. And I think that we have a pretty similar situation, I would say, with the next album that we're going to talk about, which is A Sailor's Guide to Earth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think we should probably start by talking about the Nirvana cover, <laughs> which is probably the most interesting stylistic choice that he made on the album. For our listeners, it's by Sturgill Simpson, who's a country musician. Um, but, you know, there are a whole lot more influences in there than that. If you have interest in, honestly, Southern rock, a lot of jazz influences. You know, the guy he reminds me most of, um, and this is not a perfect analog, but he reminds me a lot of James Taylor. Um, just a way that country elements are being blended in with so many different instruments, except, and this is incredible to me, Sturgill is even more bold with use of instruments than James Taylor was. Um, just the interpolation of different sounds. and of, there, There's a saxophone solo on this album. There are huge electric guitar solos. Very, very interesting work on this piece. It follows, uh, his, his previous album was Metamodern Sounds in Country Music, which was a, a similar album in terms of just relative to, I suppose, re- relative to the rest of country. Sturgill kind of maintains this playful tone. It's also just interesting to me how it stands apart from the pack of the bulk of country music that comes out, that's coming out today. Well, yeah, and I think it's really uh, interesting, and it just—it's really a nice experience to feel like he's actually experienced, like been through the last thirty years in music. A lot of times, <laughs> when you hear country musicians, a lot of times they're trying to avoid that <laughs> in large part. Um, and just hearing all of the different sounds—I mean, the, the Nirvana cover is quite emblematic of that. You're not going to hear grunge at any point on the album, including on the cover of Nirvana. But what you are going to hear is someone 
who understands what it means to make a grunge song, and he understands what it means to make a rock song. He does all of this into this weird, like, combination that really works well consistently throughout the album. It's also distinct on the album in that I think it it might actually have the the least depth of of production on the album, which isn't meant to be an indictment. It's just stylistically unique, which makes some amount of sense, honestly. It's also, his In Bloom cover is also maybe my favorite song on the album. It's, wow. I'm, not, I'm not sure that it's, I'm not absolutely sure that it's the best. I think that it's approximately tied with two or three other songs for that title. But it is certainly the one I enjoy the most. I mean, the, the dude has Welcome to Earth, which is the introduction track, which is this crazy ballad. It's good stuff. Call to Arms at the end yeah. is a very, very good war allegory. Um, it's a really, really excellent album. And every single song. Um, enjoyed a lot and was really surprised by this one, too. Um, came out of nowhere. It's also framed, interestingly, as a letter to his son from himself in the Navy um, off participating in war. And I think it, it was meant to, to mirror the experiences of his own father. And that's, uh, that's part of why he actually ended up going with the cover of In Bloom is because he... Um, I don't know if uh, people have heard the story, but... He at, was talking to his wife about putting a song on the album that represented his childhood, and he couldn't uh, think of any song to create. And she basically just uh, told him to think about what songs he listened to when he was younger, and that's where the Nirvana cover comes from originally. When he was 11 or 12, that's what he was listening to. and um, really tells a, a lot about both what he wanted the album to be, but I think also why it sounds the way it does. Now, I just want to see the alternate dimension where Sturgill Simpson is a punk rocker. That's, that's what I'm interested in. I think, I think he could release an album in quite a few genres that would be pretty interesting and listenable. A, a punk rocker covering Willie Nelson at that. I mean, Will, also, I mean, talk about Willie Nelson connections, you know, as far as yeah. outlaw country goes. It's, there certainly is a, a pretty clear through line there. Yeah, definitely, I mean, definitely. I mean, it's I, Willie Nelson certainly doesn't go as far into like psychedelic country <laughs> if that exists. <laughs> Willie Nelson doesn't go as far into that, but in tone they are they are actually very similar. I think. Just to kind of end with uh, Sailor's Guide, where we began, um, it really didn't have a lot of uh, just production stuff going into the release of it. In fact, he actually produced the whole album himself, which is. Uh, pretty significant thing in the year 2016 to not have had a bunch of different people's hands on it. Um, so I think the next album that we're going to talk about is Moonshape Pool. I know that this is currently uh, Trevor's album of the year, yeah. so let Love him start off by talking about it. Love this album. Definitely my favorite album of the year so far, although I think The Lemonade is pretty reasonably close to it. It's a return to form for Radiohead after an honestly disappointing King of Limbs, which came out in 2011 which uh, certainly wasn't a bad project, but it was, it was more textured, but it also was probably their least dynamic int- album and the least interesting album that I think we've heard from Radiohead. I mean, it's, it's, less in- it's better, but it's less interesting than even Pablo Honey, which is crazy. It's crazy. But um, this is, it's also, what's interesting to me is that it's the most explicitly personal Radiohead album that we've ever heard. In that, and that's not saying that the lyrics are still as abstract and difficult to get a grasp on the closer you look at them. 
they're still they're still as abstract as any other Radiohead album, Kid A on especially, but in in general. But it's it also is constructed in response to the uh, the divorce between Tom York and uh, his his ex wife Rachel Owen, and it really it it really does follow through a a pretty clear narrative throughout the album, where it it lands on uh, going from from daydreaming to true love waits. It really goes through basically just anger over a disintegrating relationship and lands ultimately with wanting it to a nostalgia for wishing that the relationship was back together again. I think it's interesting you describe the album as a return to form, um, given that, yes, it's as dynamic as we expect Radiohead to be, it's as lyrically dense as we expect Radiohead to be, but it's also just fundamentally different in the sense that you have orchestral sounds that we haven't heard on any other Radiohead release yet. That's true. That's true. And it, it also does have... You know, we've, we've certainly heard stringed instruments on Radiohead albums before, but never to this extent, never... Yeah. Never in the same orchestral way where you know it's used in *Burn the Witch*. They use the the violins to phenomenal effect. The first track on the album they use it to phenomenal effect, where it, it starts off basically almost as a percussive element that really sets the pacing of the song. And ultimately, by the end of the track, they screech and sound like a wildfire. It's excellent. It also *Burn the Witch* is my favorite song on the album, um, and partially because it actually reminds me of the movie soundtrack for There Will Be Blood that Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead actually wrote. Um, reminds me a lot of the sounds that you get in that movie. Uh, just really, really frantic, really, really, honestly, anxiety-inducing, and just gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. Yeah. It's also, you know, uh, clearly it's uh, a project where Johnny Greenwood had a great deal of, of creative influence on, which is not a bad thing at all. Greenwood is excellent. Hey, we we also get the signature Tom York wailing and, and quite a few songs um, and, and honestly a pretty good rule of thumb for Radiohead for me at least is that more Tom York wailing means better song and, and it lines up pretty well on this album the, the songs where you have more Tom York wailing are are the better songs in the album certainly I'm not sure that that's a causal relationship but I agree that they correlate pretty well I'm curious what y'all think the most whaley song on this album is the... <laughs> ooh uh. That's actually a tough one. What you got, Trevor? Burn the Witch is too subdued, I think. If I mean, it's I think that it qualifies, but also the vocals are mixed lower in a way that makes the wailing less wailing. No, no, you, you just gotta turn the volume up. Burn the Witch is my pick. <laughs> Alright, so Trevor's take is that low-pitched wailing is less wailing. <laughs> I, I think I think that when you bury the vocals further in the mix, and by the way, that's that's not meant as a, a criticism of the track's mixing. I think it's mixed excellently. It's just that the vocals are certainly by the time Tom York gets to peak wailing. But I mean, it, it is a criticism. If you're criticizing the wailing on a Radiohead song, you're criticizing the value of <laughs> that song. That's not. True. That's how Radiohead works. Uh, I, I, I once again, I, I I think that it's it's pretty reasonable to say that those two things correlate, but that is not a causal relationship. <laughs> Not. I think we'd probably be uh, remiss for not mentioning that uh, Radiohead will be at ACL this year, which is pretty exciting. I know I'm you so excited. Miracle. I know you oh. were looking at uh, the track oh. listing 
today. Any particular thoughts, Drew? Yeah, we saw a track listing release from Barcelona, I want to say, a couple days ago from a festival. And we've got some really excellent stuff on these Radiohead set lists that is looking really consistent. We've got a lot of Kid A on these set lists. Everything in its right place from Kid A on all the set lists I've seen, along with Idiotech. National Anthem on a couple of them. Paranoid Android, um, the seven-minute masterpiece from OK Computer, is on a couple of the set lists as encores. So cross your fingers that they move that up in the set list and hit it for some of their shorter venues, because... At this rate, I'm not 100% sure we'll hit that one. I mean, honestly, the set lists are really, really solid because they hit up a lot of the moon-shaped pool hits and also make sure to focus on older songs. We have Radiohead playing Creep. They're playing Creep in the concert for the first time in about a decade. So that's something a lot of people have their eye on going forward. I wanted to ask you guys, before I forget, I wanted to ask you guys what other albums you would compare it to in terms of being so, so clearly about for the most part, Tom York's Divorce. Um, off the top of my head, other albums with similar uh, insight into the personal disintegration of the relationship into the album would be, uh, you have Rumors by Fleetwood Mac, you have uh, Blood on the Tracks to an extent, to an extent, even though he, doesn't Bob Dylan claim that it's based on uh, Chekhov's short stories? And yeah, but he, you can't believe anything Bob Dylan ever says about I his don't music. At all. So I don't at all. He's claimed actually a lot of different things about that album, because he's also uh, done an interview, and I mean, this is a really long time ago, but he did an interview where he said that uh, it, it is strange to him that anyone could possibly enjoy that album, since it comes <laughs> from so much of his own personal pain. So, he's a... Uh, He's really just interview to interview, just changes his mind on what he wants people to think about the album. I think that you have to take it as whatever it seems like to you as opposed to listen to his particular idea. Um, the first six songs on Lemonade, if they had finished that way. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, it's actually a decent comparison. I mean, you look at the rest of the albums in 2016, those are the clear two that we have looked at that seem to have such a specific look into the artist's own personal life where they really bear their soul in regards to what's actually happening in their lives well and I, I talk about this a little bit in our year in review but it's really hard for something to be either boring or overplayed if it is actually like significantly about how someone feels about something in a really genuine way yeah. that's a pretty that's kind of a shortcut towards making meaningful music. If it's able to portray that, it's probably going to work. You know, I would bring up the James Blake album released last month here, but that that album is way too long, and I don't know how many hours we have for this podcast <laughs> for that. So, throwing I mean, throwing that amount of personal insight together with the just generally phenomenal abstract lyricism that Radiohead brings to the table over just an unparalleled depth of of production, and you have just what I think is the best album of the year so far. Compare that to you know um, another another group that tends to have extremely busy production, but I think faltered with their release this year would be Animal Collective with their album Painting With. Um, they they generally, Animal Collective traditionally has just very busy production and it actually generally goes pretty well. And that is a tight rope to walk, really. I mean, you have to, 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 to have a production that is that busy and not sound incredibly artificial or just too constructed or just... Uh, in order for that to not distract away from the lyricism or anything else in the track. It's an impressive feat to pull off. 
It really is. And you see that on some songs like Floridada and Golden Gal, which are two of the clear highlights of the album. Um, Floridada is one of uh, probably my favorite songs of the year. Um, it works really, really well. Um, and then in other places, it really just doesn't. And it's not good when you have that much production and just so many different noises on an album without it being interesting. And too many times, this album is just not interesting. That's true. I, I like a lot of the parts of the album where Animal Collective sounds the most like the Beach Boys. Because um, you can't go wrong with that. And uh, honestly, there are a lot of points where they do. On Floridada, I feel like they're just doing a... Paul Wilson impression straight through and it, it's a really good time but then then you get to songs like Burglar which <laughs> you know, I don't really want to talk about they, what they does and doesn't make sense on that yeah, one. I'll, I'll say this for Burglars. They pronounce Burglar in a very interesting way. They pronounce it like um, like the thing you would sit under so it's like a pergola. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about not being interesting. That's That's fascinating. Why would they make that decision? I don't know. Let's listen to more. Well, the the songs that work are the ones that sound like more up... Well, most of the time, more upbeat Beach Boy songs. But something like Hocus Pocus, which is a song that I don't think works at all, really layers vocals in a way similar to something that you might see on uh, a Beach Boys album. Yeah, but on a Beach Boys album, the background music actually actually works and, and doesn't just sound like a muddled mess like a lot of the sound, songs here do. This is... Um, Another, another. by the way, another album that was criticized for having too busy production by Animal Collective pretty pretty frequently by some of their longtime listeners was Centipede Hurts, which I actually think does not really suffer from that problem. I think that's a generally underrated album, and I think that it generally walks that tightrope really well. But here you have, I mean, Hocus Pocus does a pretty abysmal job of that. Burglars does a really horrible job of that. <laughs> It's, I, th- I, I really do think that it's redeemed a lot by the fact that Floridada and uh, Golden Gal are both, at this point, some of my very favorite tracks of the year. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely check out some of the better songs from the album without question if you haven't heard them already. But, I mean, more than anything, if you're expecting to find a Meriwether Post Pavilion in here, you're, you should probably look somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, Meriwether Post Pavilion and the EP that followed it are approximately the only Animal Collective that sound very much like that album. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They, absolutely. they really do change their sound a lot album to album. It's also their best album, so oh, hey, no, no complaints here. Sure. <laughs> I feel like there's too often that they, they treat lyrics in this album... A lot of times lyrics can be somewhat textural in some Animal Collective songs, but I think it happens too often in this uh, album. But moments when they take them not necessarily seriously, but they really take some time to make the lyrics actually funny or um, just meaningful really works a lot better. Like, one of my favorite moments is the false equivalency in uh, Bagels and Keeve. Um, I believe the lyric is, I wasn't there when Moses parted the sea. I wasn't there with your grandpa back in Keeve. <laughs> you know what that song actually reminds me a lot of? That song reminds me a lot of Vampire Weekend. Lyrically, it sounds like Vampire Weekend, and a lot of the instrumentation does too, which is... Definitely not what I would expect from these guys. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll buy that comparison. I agree. Um, I, I do think that part of the issues with the albums where where the, the lyricism doesn't really work as well, where the busy production becomes too heavy and collapses under its own weight, 
I think that part of that really can be attributed to the fact that Animal Collective had a different creative process going into this album than any other Animal Collective album we've seen so far. And that is that in previous albums, most, and that's this is true of almost every Animal Collective album and certainly all official releases since uh, their, their early albums when they officially changed their name to Animal Collective. All 150 releases. Yeah. <laughs> they really are incredibly prolific. But they typically vet their tracks and they, they typically play their tracks before live audiences well before putting them on an album. You know, all the, for example, all the, all the tracks or nearly all the tracks on Merriweather were tr- tested out in front of audiences. And, you know, the, the benefit of the jam in that case gives them the ability to see what works, see what doesn't work, watch the crowd and see what they like just see for themselves, really become comfortable with a track before they end up recording the final definitive version of it for an album. And here, they went straight to the studio. They did a lot of interesting things. That's I will say this, you know, uh, even where the songs don't work, if you take a moment to really look at what's going on, it's reasonably interesting, if not necessarily enjoyable. But they really did lose their vitality in that in that new process of not vetting their tracks. And I think it's important for us to remember, you know, that this is an album made by an actual tried and true collective of artists. Um, it is a group of people who release work as Animal Collective and their own solo groups. And, and that really is significant because these guys have a lot of swirling ideas and thoughts and sometimes they do miss. That has happened throughout their career. Um, and so, I mean, it, it's not an enormous surprise that this album hasn't been fantastic. Uh, but you've still got some great ideas on it, and I expect that the next Animal Collective album will maybe surprise us and do a great job as well, so we'll see what happens. Saying, saying this as a pretty big Animal Collective fan, I think that it's in probably their bottom three albums. I also think that it's decent. Um, I will listen to it again, but uh, I think it's reasonable to expect, at least, given how much they tend to shift in tone and style album to album, I think it's reasonable to expect that this isn't going to be a problem for them in their next album. Alrighty, so I think we're going to move on to our second major topic of the day, which is Coloring Book by Chance the Rapper. It uh, was a pretty important album. It's really been everywhere if you follow music significantly, and I think that we have a little bit of a different opinion about it than other people. Starting, I think, with the Use of Big Fella, starting <laughs> on the second track, No Problems. You don't want zero problems, Big Fella. Chance decided to bring in Vine comedian Haha Davis to, to throw on an ad-lib on not one, but three tracks in the album. And one of them, he's a pretty large part of the track, too. I, it's, and basically the conceit of the Vine is that Haha Davis just ad-libs a a series of things with the the catchphrase "big fella" attached to them, you know, with the the most the most recognizable example from the album being in the start of uh, of the no problems. No problems. He says, "You don't want zero problems, big fella." It's it's fun but confusing. And then, See, Trevor doesn't get it when you say "big fella" in front of it. It's funny. <laughs> he doesn't get it. <laughs> I don't object to it being present in that song. 
I do object to it being present in three tracks. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it does get a little bit old, especially given that, honestly, most people just don't appear to get the joke. What's, what's crazy to me is that it would make a lot more sense to me if Haha ha Davis was from Chicago, like Chance. But he's not. No. He's, a, he's a Seattle Vine comedian. Why did he reach out to him? I feel like a pretty big takeaway here from the entire album, for me at least, is that it's impossible for me to not enjoy Chance the Rapper's music. It's just impossible. Um, that no matter the degree to which you have things that just aren't perfect, things that do have flaws in them, like on No Problems, you have just a cringeworthy Lil Wayne verse. Really, really poor work. You, you, I mean, you've got some unfortunate things on this album. The album is not perfect, but the album does have some really enjoyable soul sound production. Um, it has a lot of interesting features that sometimes hit, sometimes miss. Chance sometimes does a great job with his verses, other times not as much. And it's also just impossible for me not to enjoy Chance the Rapper. He's too much fun, and he is too much of an incredible personality where I just enjoy everything as he does, and his delivery is consistently incredible. It actually took me a few listens to the album to start enjoying it at a consistent level. And I, I, I always liked some of the best tracks, but uh, I, the, the worst tracks in the album are sufficiently disappointing, and the tracks just above those are sufficiently middling that at first I, I, I really didn't care for it. Um, it's grown on me a lot, partially because, well, first off, the production is predominantly, predominantly taken care of by uh, Chance's backing band, The Social Experiment, who he recorded an album with previously under the, the name Donnie Trumpet and the Social Experiment, along with his, his childhood friend, John, Donnie Trumpet. But, um, yeah, that, that's the surf mixtape. And if you've heard Sunday Candy by Chance and the Social Experiment, then you know the album. Yeah, but, well, to, to be fair, Sunday Candy, to me, is by far better than anything else on the Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So if, if yeah, it really is the big if you've heard If you've heard Sunday Candy... You've heard something 40% better than the rest of the album, but you get the idea of the tone. Um, and part of the issue with Surf, I think, is that it really did suffer from an overabundance of features and from some some real distracting mixing issues. And do you guys see that in Coloring Book? To an extent, but to a lesser extent, I think. I think that the features in the second half consistently don't work, but I definitely don't feel like it's like Surf. Um, that's my biggest problem with Surf, probably, yeah. is that I, I just don't think that the guest verses, and I mean, I guess they're not totally guest verses in the same way they are in an actual Chance release, but I think the non-Chance verses do not work nearly well enough. I think the biggest concern with Coloring Book and Chance more generally for me is that while his uh, personality is certainly infectious, sometimes that is all that is there in too many of the songs oh, now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that is... Something that does significantly take away how much I enjoy his music in general. Um, past acid rap, I think it's been really interesting to see how he's gone. I think even more towards a personality-based, just music style. I mean, on all night, you literally have what just sounds like a just club mix with honestly pretty abysmal lyrics that Chance somehow makes pretty funny. And, and the song ends up being saved by the fact that Chance is a perfectly great personality. 
I'm not a I, fan of that song. Really. I, I don't know that I would go so far as to say that the song is saved, but I think it could that the be song a lot is worse. listenable. I I don't think it's a good song. <laughs> I I'll agree that it's definitely significantly better from Chance's Charisma. I won't argue that. Some there there are some tracks on the album though that I do think are pretty excellent. You know, you look at um, first off Summer Friends, which I think is probably my favorite song on the project. The production is shimmering and evokes nostalgia in a way that really matches the the lyrics which are about uh about summer violence in chicago and it certainly certainly carries the most weight of any track on the album by a long shot you know my favorite part of that song is actually the bony Vare impression to introduce us to the very beginning of the song um i absolutely love that and, and who's that done by that's done by francis and the lights and it is really really good stuff I was actually curious what you guys take away on that was it's getting interesting to me the degree to which we keep hearing these Boney Vare impersonations <laughs> and albums in 2016 I, I'm not I'm not 100% convinced that it's not all Boney Vare and he just goes by a lot of different monikers <laughs> like MF Doom MF Doom has 20 different names I, I think it's I think it's Boney Vare you know Ch- Chance actually said in regards to that track he said that Francis and the Lights was uh, th- that it was that he was the the new prince, which is insane, and also just about the worst over exaggeration I've ever heard. It seems like pretty insensitive timing too, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the big the, the problem with Coloring Book is that there's too many songs on Coloring Book that would be the worst song on Acid Rap. That's true. It it's like way too many and I think Acid Rap is an album that is just easier to take more seriously I really think there's more weight to it more often and it's a problem when most of the songs on Coloring Book that I like the most have a direct analog on Acid Rap and many of those times the Acid Rap songs are better so I mean you look at for example Dram Singh's special is to me a pretty clear spiritual successor to everybody's somebody's everything off Acid Rap um, all we got is pretty solid, but it's nothing compared to the intro, good ass intro to Acid Rap. Um, well, when we talk about all we got, we, we have to bring up the life of Pablo. It, it is incredibly important to remember that Coloring Book is very, very much a sister project and more the successor of the life of Pablo um, that Kanye described as this gospel album that mostly wasn't. <laughs> And Chance really very much is the gospel album that has been being described this whole time. And that's oh, yeah. been being espoused by these guys. I mean, in, in Coloring Book, Chance plays the gospel elements absolutely straight, the entire album. In The Life of Pablo, they're mostly used in service of a contrast with the lyrical content of the rest of the tracks. And I don't think that's bad at all. In fact, I, I mean, I like Pablo better than I like Coloring Book. But it is interesting to see what a hip-hop gospel album that's actually intending to be a hip-hop gospel album actually sounds like. I think that that's why it works better in the life of Pablo. I think if you're just making personality-driven gospel rap music, I honestly don't find that very interesting consistently over an entire album. But when you juxtapose that against just the greater Kanye personality, the other production elements that he consistently brings in. I think that that elevates the gospel portions that exist, such as on Ultra Light Beam. Um, it, it, when you put those around different sounding things that are on a similar level of quality, it really brings out what's 
good about the gospel sound inside of these albums. I also think, I agree and I don't, um, given that I do agree that the life of Pablo has better execution of the very, very marginal gospel level that it has. Um, But I think that's more just a factor of the music than the idea that there's some problem with a gospel rap album. I, I think it's all about execution. I think that I think that if you're gonna have a gospel rap album, it's gonna be all. The problem is if it's gonna be all in the same tone, which I think Coloring Book mostly is. And the one significant moment when Coloring Book changes tone is on mixtape, and that <laughs> is actually the worst song on the album. I so agree. It, it doesn't really help with the differentiation. I mean, if you can do that with different tones and with different subject matter, I think that that could work really well. I don't think Chance comes close to differing any of those things appropriately. I think it's also notable that here in the studio we're sitting below an actual canvas of acid rap. <laughs> so uh, acid rap era Chance is looking down of us or at us right now. So it's kind of hard to escape that shadow. Uh, it really is. I also think, you know, there are moments on acid rap, to be fair to Cohen Book, there are certainly moments on acid rap where, you know, the content isn't very meaty. And it's, there are lightweight moments that are driven by Chance's charisma in the same way. But I think that there are two significant differences there. One being that I think that the serious moments that give it more emotional weight are more present and more interspersed throughout the album in such a way that those lighter moments feel more earned. And I also think that in terms of just talking about Chance's level of charisma, I think that it's, it's notable to, to point out that on Acid Rap, Chance was on LSD during the writing and recording of some of those songs, and that really did impact his delivery, and that really did impact just the madcap wildness of a lot of his, his charismatic moments on Acid Rap. Say what you will about LSD, but uh, it historically is pretty good for music. <laughs> you got Revolver, you got Sgt. Pepper, you've got basically the entire six, 60s you've got acid rap and <laughs> I, I think it's fair to say that chance isn't doing the same drugs no more with coloring book yeah i think it i think it should be said though that we all like coloring book pretty oh, yeah. significantly yeah. i think it's just compared to the general acclaim that it's received i think we're a little bit lower on it um compared to acid rap for instance we're a little bit lower on it but in general it is an album that we enjoyed here quite a bit and if you haven't listened to it, I definitely think you should give it a listen. It's also free online if you just look it up, so worth a shot. I think you should skip mixtape, but other than that, <laughs> I think you should listen to the rest of the album. But how are they going to hear about cover art? How are they going to hear about mixtapes? Well, I think we're going to move on to an album that has almost the exact opposite problem. Um, I think if Coloring Book is consistently too much in the same tone in a positive way, then views is <laughs> depressing i think if it were good enough to be taken at its face at any moment views is easily in my opinion the worst major release of the year so far it's it's 17 hours long and there are three minutes that are decent but we're not lying it actually is 17 <laughs> hours long i mean what is it it's 81 minutes actually it's 81 minutes you, know, you compare that to the lengths of uh, The College Dropout and To Pimp a Butterfly are both of similar length. Both albums that are extremely excellent and both could probably benefit a little bit by being shortened just a tad. This album has absolutely none of the factors that make To Pimp a Butterfly or The College Dropout strong albums that can persist through that long. 
I mean, it really, it gets old on the second track. That is, that is absolutely when I think it starts dying, is the, the second track. Yeah, the second track is based on a chorus that is <laughs> structured around flipping the number six, which yeah. is, of course, you know, views from the six. It's, of course, the Toronto area. Uh, he says, turn the six upside down. It's a nine now. <laughs> About 20 times in the song. But he's not wrong, guys. If you turn the six upside down, it is a nine now. I, when I was reviewing the album, I wanted very badly to give it a six so that I could say at the end to Drake fans, turn the six upside down, it's a nine now. But it's just not good enough to be a six. It's really not. It, it really isn't. Uh, it's, it is a horrible album. There is barely any merit to any tracks. The, the line we just mentioned, turn the six upside down, it's a nine now. There is something equivalently bad and strange on most of the tracks on the album. <laughs> yes. On the first track, there's a line about uh, <laughs> Bentleys. Yeah, it's um, just like when Chrysler made the one car that looks just like the Bentley. Which just seems like a like he put that in as like a moment where he was going to talk about that car and he was going to look up what it was and discuss it a little bit and then just left in the unedited note that he added. <laughs> he had- he had he had a, a notepad open in a, in a separate tab, and then his computer shut down, and he just forgot about it. I, I guess to close out here, probably the best thing we can ask about this album is, what is your favorite terrible line on Views? <laughs> I think the six upside down into uh, nine now that, is that probably would... the one that's going to stick with me the most from the album, maybe along with I the mean, Bentley line. In terms of, in terms of just pure cringe... The actually most offensive one would be uh, the in the cheesecake verse. You know, Drake says, "Don't make me take you back to the ghetto." It's horrible. Oh, but that, I also don't think that that is nearly as offensive as. I mean, the entire track is. Child's play is is one of the most horribly misogynistic and just also lyrically horrible <laughs> tracks of the year. I mean, that's not really my big problem with it, though. My, my big problem is when you have Drake saying, Why you gotta fight with me at Cheesecake? <laughs> you know I love to go there. And, and, and if, it, it, if you haven't heard the delivery, it's just too perfect because <laughs> you, you get this dramatic buildup with the production, and then the bass drops, and Drake says, Why you gotta fight with me at Cheesecake? <laughs> you know I love to go there. He plays it so straight, too. If he tried to be a little goofy about it, maybe it would work. But, you know, he he loves to go there. He he doesn't play around with (laughs) cheesecake. The Cheesecake Factory should have a series of promotional commercials featuring Drake. You know, he would probably sign up for that, which is the incredible part. You know, he loves to go there. He's going to have a lot of time now. I believe he's thinking about taking a pretty significant break. Retired. Yeah. Between that and not being able to be at Toronto Raptors games anymore, (laughs) he's going to be pretty bored, I would say, over the next couple months at the very least. I'll tell you what, to the extent that... I I don't believe that that's true, that he's actually retiring for good, but I will buy a ticket to every single movie that Drake is ever in to help finance his retirement. (laughs) I want him to stay out of music for a while. I really do. Not to put a disclaimer on everything that we say, but we do not hate other Drake albums. <laughs> this is this is certainly worse than his... Overwhelmingly worse. Than I mean, pretty much anything else that nothing, he's released. Nothing so. was the same as decent. Um, if you're reading it 
if you're reading this, it's too late. Is decent. I don't think either are phenomenal, but they are they are fine. They're they're perfectly good. This is actually just a horrible album. It really is. Yeah, if you're judging us based off of past Drake albums you've heard, you really should take a listen to these before you do that. <laughs> the first 15 minutes, because you've heard it all at that point. God. Well, yeah, that's the ultimately that's the problem is that it all sounds the same. Oh, it, it's basically almost all the way to Hotline Bling at the end. It's the least dynamic album of the year. At least the, the least dynamic major album release of the year. It really is. Yeah, even if it... It would be marginally better even if it had four more songs that were like Hotline Bling just to even, put in the middle. I don't even particularly yeah, like Hotline I'm, Bling. I'm not but. even convinced that Hotline Bling is a good song. I think it's I think it's pretty much fine. You know, I, I think it's an innocuous and inoffensive earworm that just happened to propel itself into being extremely popular based on the fact that Drake can be charismatic sometimes and he looks goofy in the video and it became a meme. He's almost it's almost the opposite of charisma. He's <laughs> so goofy while dad dancing in that uh, music video that it really elevated how popular the song was. But if if he just had things that were on a different tone like that song, that would help a little bit. I mean, in regards to that, gotta give Drake credit for just being very self-aware. It was an extremely clever marketing move on his part, the music video in general. Alright, so I think that is about it for the Solid Soul Podcast. This is episode two. Um, please check out our site. We should have, by the time that this is finished, the uh, year in review so far up, um, as well as other daily content. Oh, so you should be looking for most of these uh, reviews over the next week, basically. So check out the site and make sure to leave a review. It really helps us out, helps us grow the podcast, grow the website. And if you do that, then when we get to your review in iTunes, we'll give you a shout out at the beginning of the podcast. So thanks. Have a great day, guys. That's the end of the podcast, big fella.